The Quarantine Conversations podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Our interviewee today is Roger Becky, a hydrogeologist. Uh, now, Roger, in this series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a, a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Yeah, I guess I, I'm, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm probably in that senior researcher area. Although for my, for my students, I like to call myself more of a coach than, so I try to uh, enable them to do their research. That's, that's the way I conceive of it. Maybe they think I'm a slave driver, but that's, I try to think of, it as a of myself as a coach in that context. That's a, a great approach to, um, to leading students. Uh, now, what is a hydrogeologist? Well, you know, the, um, it's someone who studies uh, groundwater. So um, that's the largest reservoir of fresh water outside of uh, the ice packs. So there's more, more fresh water in groundwater than there are in lakes and rivers. And, and so we study the supply, the contamination, the impacts for, um, for agriculture, for, you know, all that and it's it's um because it's so heavily involved with society and uh, and there's human interest um the largest use of, of groundwater is for agriculture um there's a lot of us so i always like to joke you know you can't throw a stone downtown in the consulting community without hitting a hydrogeologist there's there's hundreds of them and um so that that's that's gratifying that it's uh, it's it's viewed as important and it's uh, it's practical. Interesting. I, I never imagined there would be so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think of it, but you know, there. Uh, you know, all of our our grad students are in heavily in high demand once they once they graduate, and um, yeah, I get and I think it's the practical route. So so hydrogeology. It's kind of um, it has interesting roots in that there's a, there's a whole water supply um, dynamic or history to it, and that you know every farmer needed a well, and you know you can imagine that, and and water supplies for for towns and cities and for industries, mines, hatcheries, that kind of thing. So there is a very practical side, and then there's a sort of the science. Um, side it's part of the water cycle if you want to people always I, I don't like to think of groundwater as an isolated thing but uh, it's connected to the whole hydrologic cycle and if you want to understand the earth and the, the, the water cycle you have to understand groundwater so there's a science side and the early roots of, of groundwater were very engineering very practical and probably I don't know, maybe the 60s, 70s is when people started linking it into the science side and, you know, the, the importance of, of groundwater for the whole hydrologic cycle. So, so yeah, it's been, it's, it's kind of interesting that way. So I, I'm, I'm definitely on the applied sort of engineering route side. And you'll see there's hydrogeologists in engineering departments, there's hydrogeologists in the earth sciences departments. Um, and uh, our group here, and, and UBC has a long history of hydrogeology, is kind of splitting split right in the middle and that we're the geological engineering program that is uh housed in the in the science department in a you know in an earth sciences department and i always i always joke like it's it's like uh, the geological engineering program is like canada you know it, it uh, works in practice but not in theory <laughs> so <laughs> somehow somehow it's it's actually the right place because you need to, to do it well you need to understand the earth and you need to under, understand the earth sciences um, but yeah you need that practical problem solving approach if you're going to work in, in industry so that's why i think the geological engineering program has thrived so well here in uh, the earth and ocean earth ocean atmospheric sciences and before that geology and so just to drive it a little closer to home, um, is the water that I'm drinking right now uh, from groundwater or is it surface water? Well, actually, yeah, the, uh, it's, Vancouver's unusual in that uh, we've got such a great, um, we've got this catchment up in the, in the mountains. And so it's mostly um, uh, surface water, 
but most of that water would have made it into the reservoirs over uh, probably an overland pathway. So it's kind of quasi uh, quasi groundwater. But if you look at like uh, the Fraser River and most of the lakes, most of the water that gets into those water bodies takes uh, a path through the ground or at least on the ground. And so it's affected by groundwater. I always tell um, the students in the first class of the hydrogeology class, I no longer teach that, but what I did is that the rivers and lakes are just groundwater outcrops. That's, you know, it's the expression, the surface expression of that water, but it continues on into the porous media below. And uh, by far the larger reservoir is this, uh, is that, that, that groundwater in, in aggregate, in, you know, in total in the earth, that groundwater. So, so yeah, you're, you're, if your water has, you know, and, and Vancouver drinking water has about seven parts per million dissolved solids, which is incredibly low. But uh, that I mean, it's very close to distilled, uh, you know, rainwater. We are, we are. It's unusual how good our drinking water is, and that's partly because it rains out the, on there on the North Shore Mountains, and those mountains are uh, are, are relatively uh, insoluble. I guess insoluble materials. They're not super porous, and then. We, we, we drink it right away. But the, uh, that's those seven parts per million of dissolved solids, they came from earth materials. And so, so in that sense, they're, they're impacted by groundwater also. But Vancouver is, is, is somewhat unusual that way, that our water is so good and so pure. And it's, it's just like, uh, like rainwater. To have water that, that clean, that low dissolved solids is unusual. We're basically getting power washed all the time. You're getting power washed, yeah. And you know, I always wonder, you know, if they, there have been studies saying that um, uh, highly mineralized water is healthier for you. Mm. And the, um, you know, one way, if if you if you ingest some uh, some uh, an excess of a certain uh, element, one way you can try to get rid of it is drink very clean water and try to rinse it out. And so I always wonder, you know, maybe it's not a good thing to drink all this distilled water because we're rinsing all the calcium and whatever stuff we want to keep. But luckily, our diet is so uh, so rich in minerals that we don't have to worry about that. Oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't like. I don't think I don't recommend drink, drinking distilled water because you're kind of leaching yourself out. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes total sense. I, but yeah. yeah, again, I never thought about that. Yeah. But I, but I have to caution, I'm not a health expert. I'm a, I'm a groundwater guy. <laughs> that's a good caveat to make. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Please do not do this at home. You know, look it up, Google it, and then you'll find out. <laughs> uh, so you, you've shown how um, hydrogeology really is a, an interesting field and a field that um, I would never think of as, as being so fascinating. Um, how did you get into this? Well, it, it's really, I stumbled into it, but the uh, uh, the... The funny thing is, is my father is a hydrogeologist, and uh, he actually had a, uh, he was a, a consulting engineer in Saskatchewan, and he used to, you know, do things like water supplies for towns and municipalities, that was most of his business, but also for industries. And then um, uh, I always wanted to be an engineer, and I was, initially I was, I thought I'd be in physics, because I like math and physics, and then my I grew up in the prairies in Saskatchewan and, and my parents said, you know, look around, do you see any physicists who are working or employed? <laughs> you can get a grip, you gotta be an engineer. So, um, uh, and I don't regret that. So I, I was initially in um, electrical engineering and I went to University of Waterloo. I moved from the prairies to Waterloo and I talked to a lot of the electrical engineers and said, yeah, we're all working over here in, in Ottawa. Everyone's working at this company called um, Northern Telecom, which became Nortel. And I looked around and said, I don't want to work in Ottawa. <laughs> I, want to live, I want to live out west. I said, how can I live out west in the mountains? What kind of engineering would you know, Geological engineering. Okay, so that's, so that's how I kind of stumbled into it. And then um, uh, it's, I'd gone to Waterloo and it turns out Waterloo is one of the world powerhouses for hydrogeology. So when I, I uh, the, the geological engineering program had a heavy emphasis on hydrogeology. And then when uh, uh, I finished my undergrad, they said, you know, you should go off to grad school in hydrogeology. So 
that's that's basically how I stumbled into it. And now my mother happens to be a teacher, so uh, I kind of split the. So it must be all genetic, I guess. You know, I got my my the hydrogeology from the dad, from my dad, and the uh, the, the teachers teaching side from my mother. I just enjoy that you went to Waterloo uh, to study hydrogeology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, uh, um, the the department has some strong roots there because Uli Mayer did his PhD there. I did my undergrad, and uh, Ali, who we just had Ali Miri, who we hired last year, I guess, uh, he also did his PhD there. So Waterloo again, it's got its fingerprints on uh, on the uh, groundwater program here. <laughs> um. Now, with this long uh, career that you've had, uh, have you made any big discoveries that you'd like to share? You know, it's it's been more sort of uh, incremental, I guess, is what I would say. Um, the uh, probably the one more interesting uh, project and um, I guess discovery was uh, related to naturally occurring arsenic in India and Bangladesh. And what's going on there is. Uh, there's, uh, uh, I went on sabbatical uh, at MIT and I was looking for new areas to, to, to go into to, to develop some new research projects. And my, my friend there, Charlie Harvey, was working on a project in Bangladesh. And so he got me involved in working in uh, trying to understand why there's high levels of arsenic in groundwater in the Bengal Basin. So the Bengal Basin is uh, on the eastern side, goes over to Bangladesh, and on the western side into West Bengal in India. And one of the, the so there's some weird things there. One is that uh, you can put a well down in one location and you'll have high arsenic. And so what's high arsenic? Uh, 10 parts per billion is considered the uh, World Health, actually the U.S. and Canadian um, standard. So you're not supposed to drink water over 10 parts per billion. And the uh, there's situations in India and Bangladesh where they'd get a uh, thousand, you know, parts per billion. So a milligram per liter almost, or 500 ppb parts per billion, which is oh, wow. extremely hazardous and toxic. The epidemiology is very, very clear about that. Now the puzzling thing is that you could we'd be in these villages so we'd be working in these these villages and you'd put a well down and you'd there'd be 500 parts per million you'd go 20 meters away and the water be good oh. <laughs> you couldn't figure it out and um the uh it was no one could understand and also there was uh, the peak in the concentration would always be about uh, 20 30 meters depth and couldn't understand and this this patchiness um, and the um, and this patchiness in this distribution and this distribution with depth were very very confusing to to everyone and our the, the one of the big problems in India and Bangladesh or in the Bengal Basin is because it's a very flat area a lot of the tools that we normally use to figure out where groundwater moves don't work well so normally we measure water levels and you say oh water is going you know, it goes downhill, it goes from high water levels to low water levels. Well, if everywhere the water level is the same, and that's what happens, you know, the Bengal, it's the largest river delta in the world. So it's super flat area, big, 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 you know, it's, it's a huge area, super flat. So you can't, we could never figure out which way the water was moving based on our traditional tools. And uh, so that's why uh, it's, it, you you'd, normally we'd say, oh, I measured arsenic in this well, I'll just track the water back to where it went from, came from, but you know, the, the hydrology tools didn't work. That, and then the other problem was that um, groundwater was super consequential in India and Bangladesh. So I'm kind of a bit of a discursive thing here to get to my, my breakthrough, but uh, groundwater was very consequential for, for India and Bangladesh because um, it turns out that it's actually a dry area half the year. So right now is the monsoon, in uh, Indian Bangladesh. And so they can grow uh, rice in their fields, their paddy fields, because it needs you know, lots of water. But starting about um, October, November, the rains kind of stop. And if you look at the, uh, at the weather records for a place like Kolkata, uh, Calcutta as we used to call it, in, uh, right in, that, uh, in West Bengal, India, 
you'll see it basically doesn't rain again until May. And so in the 80s and 90s, farmers cottoned on that if I pump groundwater and irrigate my fields, I can get a crop in in the winter. And the consequence of that is places like Bangladesh and India, they doubled their rice yield. And it really, it's, you know, geopolitically, it has had a big impact because uh, they averted starvation. The places like Bangladesh were growing really, really strongly. The population, there's no way they could have kept up um, their food production with population growth had they not used groundwater. So I say that to say that um, another reason why it was difficult to track where water was going is that they had these uh, pumping wells turning on and off all the time. So farmer A would turn on his pumping well and then the water would start moving that way and farmer B would turn us on a bit later and the water moved that way. So the water was moving, so we couldn't figure out what was going on. So what, uh, uh, and then the last piece of the puzzle is when we looked at the aquifers and the aquifer sediment, there's no more arsenic there than there is in your garden here in Vancouver or on the lawn, you know, there's, you know, one or two parts per million on the solid face. So it's, it's natural crustal abundance. There's no like, there's not like arsenic sitting around in the aquifer. And so like, where is this stuff coming from? And so the, the idea um, I had was uh, to look at abandoned channels. And uh, so if you, if, you, if you ever have time, just go to Google Earth uh, over Bangladesh and India. And what you'll see is an incredible sinuous pattern of channels, you know, so it's the avulsion channels of the um, Ganges, Brahmaputra, uh, Magna river system. You know, it's one of the largest river systems in the world. And they have all these channels as the, as the rivers meander through them. They abandon, you see these oxbow lakes and stuff. And so the, uh, these abandoned channels, what happens is the river will abandon them and then they'll fill up with silt and, um, and clay. And so we had the idea is let's figure out what the water is like in those systems. No one puts wells in there because it's silt and clay they don't produce. But um, we know in hydrogeology that those are usually source beds for water. That is because they're, they're kind of spongy and permeable. They um, aquitards as we call them, but these silt and, and uh, silt layers. Um, will yield water that goes into the aquitard. And so we put a couple of piezometers in these aquitards and bingo, we found super high levels of arsenic. And so what's, what we discovered is happening is that the, uh, these uh, abandoned channels, they contain the youngest sediments, the most recent sediments, because the channels abandoned, and then it fills up in, uh, in the annual floods. They're organic rich, and um, these, these young sediments are also uh, ripe with arsenic. And when you get organic matter decomposing anaerobically, it creates a, a geochemical process that liberates arsenic into the groundwater. And that's what we're seeing. And so this, this water was moving from the abandoned channels into the, um, the arsenic, excuse me, was being liberated in the abandoned channels and the water is moving from the abandoned channels into the aquifer. And those channels, they, the most recent ones, are about 20, 30 meters depth. And um, that's where, uh, where the arsenic was coming. So, so we think that was one of the more uh, consequential uh, discoveries about the source mechanism. You know, it's these, these abandoned channels. There's all sorts of other uh, interesting questions about, well, now that you know it's there, how do you manage it? I always say arsenic is not a... Uh, it's not really, it's really a poverty question because they have more than enough water in India and Bangladesh. It's just, uh, it, and you can drink any water you want. You just have to treat it properly. And the treatment isn't super expensive, but you know, I've, I probably spent um, three, four months um, in, these, in a small village in India in particular, where our, our big research project was, you know, I spent a lot of time and these are kind of dollar a day, two dollar a day kind of people. You know, they 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 have food and they have you know meaningful lives and things, but they don't have money. <laughs> they don't, they're not really part of the, you know. They just they grow their cauliflower, they have their chickens, they grow their potatoes, and and their rice. But it's it's poor. So they don't they don't have enough money for municipal water supplies. They just they have enough money to have a, a groundwater well out in front. 
and they, they prefer to drink groundwater because the alternative is drinking from a pond. You drink from a pond and you get dysentery, you get whatever, diarrheal diseases right away. You drink groundwater, it may be full of arsenic, but you won't get cancer for maybe 10, 15 years. And so it's, it's and it's a lot more convenient. You know, if you had a pond water supply, it turns out the, the women and the girls, they, they have to go fetch the water. So they walk, you know, 10, 20, whatever, 200 meters to the pond and they have to walk back. And then, whereas if you have a, a well, you just pump it right out and you put one in front of your house and you just pump it. It's like, it's great. So. So it's a it's really a, a poverty issue and um, at, at its core. And fortunately, India and Bangladesh in the last ten years have been growing economically quite strongly. Um, this last year with COVID, they they've slowed down, but uh, that's probably the, the long term uh, solution to the to the problem. And it's naturally occurring arsenic, so it's nothing. No one did anything wrong or that kind of thing. That's a really good explanation of how uh, geology and and poverty really do uh, intersect um, in ways that we don't often think about. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And the, the uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed that that project. You know, maybe it's my my engineering background or my prairie background, but uh, you know, I, I the projects I really enjoy working on ones that have uh, are consequential for people at least. You know, and maybe in the longer term. You know, of course. Uh, uh, I'm not there, uh, you know, uh, attending to the sick people in Indian Bangladesh, but hopefully the, the, the work that we do or that we're trying to do is going to lead to uh, information that's going to allow people to better manage that situation. So, Absolutely. Uh, now, we have a, a very significant delta here in, in uh, Vancouver. Um, if the city of Richmond or the city of Delta weren't there, would we have a similar phenomenon happening? You know, that's a question that we asked in, um, so one of my students uh, who, uh, who came with me to Bangladesh and did work and eventually lived in Bangladesh for two years working on arsenic with a uh, Canadian NGO, his study was about that in uh, the Fraser River Delta. And we do see slightly elevated arsenic, but nothing like that we see in India and Bangladesh. And I think in part, because the uh, uh, we just don't have uh, I, you know I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure why you know it, it could be this this the type of sediments that we have, but the um, the Fraser River Delta aquifer beneath uh, Richmond has very similar characteristics to what what you have in India and Bangladesh. The um, and actually that's where we were. I was yesterday we were doing some sampling in the in that Fraser River Delta aquifer also trying to understand some of the the geochemical processes that are occurring because it is a, it is a good anal analog for um, what happens in these deltas in in general the uh, uh, they do have slightly high arsenic levels in um, the white rock area but it's not uh, related to this the, the same the processes are different they're distinct from what we have in India and Bangladesh now they the uh, one one reason is like why don't we know about this earlier and why is it only happening in India in, in South Asia? Uh, two reasons, I guess. Um, in at least in Vancouver area, you wouldn't drink the water in the Fraser River Delta Aquifer. It's too saline. It's not basically it's not potable. I mean, you could drink it, you could treat it, but it's just not cost effective when you have the Fraser River or you have the North Shore Mountains. So it's uh, so the water in deltas generally the quality is not great, um, and why is that? Well, there's a lot of organic matter, and there's, so there's a lot of sort of these you know things rotting down there, and that basically creates uh, these geochemical processes that gives you uh, marginal water quality. And the same is true actually in in South Asia. The they're very happy to drink that water, but it's it would be marginal here in terms of so we have what seven parts per million total dissolved solids a lot of the waters that we were uh, looking at that villagers were happily drinking was would be about 12 1300 uh, you know 
500, 600, 700 is sort of, you know, the prairies, uh, people will drink that. But after that, you can start, getting, you know, it acts like a laxative, you know, for some people, you know, so you, you, the, uh, but you, you can get used to it, but uh, it's not great compared to surface water, which, uh, or rainwater, direct rainwater will have relatively low uh, dissolved solids. So, so those are some of the reasons why it's, it's not more, more common and why we didn't think about this or we haven't encountered this earlier most people would, would consider drinking that water anyways, for other reasons, not the arsenic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. It, it's amazing that, um, you, yeah, you can study both the Fraser River and um, Bengal and uh, yeah. <laughs> find similar but also very different phenomena going on. Yeah, yeah, and then the the uh, and part of that for us was uh, was practical. I was flying to India and Bangladesh probably every year for eight or nine years, um, but that's you know it's it's twenty four hours in transit uh, one way, and then uh, it's expensive. You know, so it's just like two twenty five hundred two thousand twenty five hundred dollars just to get there. And uh, you know you got to take malaria medicine and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so the the and the uh, the Canadian government, you know, you can you can do that with your NSERC, but it's it's hard and um, uh, to get a kind of project where you can do things like install wells, etc. Uh, you need a bigger budget, and and Canada really doesn't want to do a lot of that kind of international work. They'd rather that we focus on uh, Canadian projects and Canadian problems. So, so for uh, those practical reasons, that's why we've we did a lot of work in the Fraser River Delta, also because it's interesting. We can make progress on that issue, um, and then the logistics weren't as difficult. And you can take your students there. Um, yeah. <laughs> without, yeah, I, take, I, I took several students to India and Bangladesh too, but it's harder, yeah. You can't yeah. take a whole undergrad class. No, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Once you're there, it's cheap. You know, and it's, 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 a, it's a great country, but uh, both countries, Bangladesh and India, are fascinating, but uh, uh, getting there is expensive. And you need, a, you need a local partner, actually, too. For any of those kind of um, uh, more developing kind of countries, you need a local partner to navigate the... Uh, uh, although all the systems, I know the Swiss once flew into Bangladesh and uh, they, they had sent their equipment three months earlier and when they got there it was still in customs but they could pay a fee to get them removed from customs quickly you know <laughs> so you know but you got a local partner you can get them you don't have to worry about any of that stuff yeah you can work more efficiently and it also helps them with their research capacity too, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly. I mean, that's the that's one of the things we worked with the Geological Survey of India, and I think um, that that sort of transfer of uh, of techniques and knowledge was very very useful. Now you mentioned that you went down to the the river recently. Um, I understand you're taking a, a well deserved break. Um, after being our department head for uh, two terms, right? No, I was I was a five year department head, and um, I I took I just finished a one year admin leave, but now I'm back as a regular rank and file. Although um, next year I I will be taking a sabbatical. I was I'm eligible for a sabbatical right now, but uh, because the uh, the number of people taking sabbaticals, etc it was deemed better if I take it next year. So I'll be, I'm, I'm just a regular guy right now, <laughs> this year. <laughs> next year I'll be golfing <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, are you doing research right now or? Yeah, yeah, I'm quite, quite, quite involved. Yeah, so the, um, so like I say, we were out in the field yesterday um, getting uh, new PhD students started on um, some, some of the biogeochemistry in the Fraser River Delta. Um, still uh, winding up some work on uh, drainage from mine waste in Peru. That's been a, a, a really, really interesting uh, project. And then um, a very large project on the environment, environmental impacts of fugitive natural gas in Northeast British Columbia. So we've been um, for, I guess, three and a half years now, we've had quite a large field program up in Northeast British Columbia looking at um, uh, what happens when natural gas leaks into near surface aquifers. And 
trying to understand that problem. And the, the idea there is that people know, people know the risks or people know the impacts. And so they can make management decisions. You know, do I want to, do we want to develop a shale, in, a shale gas industry or not? And uh, you know, what, what are the impacts? So we we're, we're trying to understand what the impacts might be to groundwater. There's obviously other impacts such as uh, uh, induced seismicity earthquakes and uh, you know land use disturbance so you put these drill pads you cut down trees all that kind of stuff uh roads uh, traffic blah blah but we're just we're looking at the effects of, of fugitive gas on aquifers and groundwater sorry you, you call it fugitive gas <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of i don't know where that term comes from but the uh the idea is that uh, when uh when you put an energy well into the ground, you go down to formation depth. The um, sometimes the, the the well casing fails. You know, they, and the well it's quite they're quite complicated engineering structures actually. You know, there's there's uh, steel pipe and cement and da da da. And so sometimes they'll get they'll, a hole will there'll be a hole in the casing and the gas that's produced at depth will leak out into into a near surface aquifer. Um, and then the other, the other process is just in, in drilling the well, they sometimes puncture through gas bearing zones that aren't the target, the target's down deep. Mm -hmm. And, but those intermediate gas bearing zones and then the, the fact that you punched a well in there creates a pathway for the gas to move along the borehole and then into the surface, so it's considered fugitive. That's not captured. You know, it's not captured by the well. And is this uh, fracking? It, well, it's related to fracking. I mean, the these wells that they that they install in the ground, um, the, they they'll go down to these shale beds at two three kilometers in depth. And as you know, shale is really very impermeable. You can't get you can't move fluids there. So that's when they 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 frack those wells to get the uh, the gas out. Um, so it's it's related, but the most, from what we can tell, most of the fugitive gas actually comes from these intermediate gas pockets. It's um, and just just uh, it's for everyone the um, you know they, they go down and they 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 move they drill horizontally uh, once they get into the shale bed. So the shale beds aren't super thick, but they they drill out horizontally for a kilometer maybe more. You know they they're they're always increasing the distances and they frack along that. Um, it's very difficult, or it's, it's basically impossible for uh, gas to move from the shale on a natural pathway up to the surface in northeast BC. Um, and why is that? Well, we've got this one or two kilometers of very, very impermeable sediments. And the, 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 it looks like the fracks, you know, the, the fractures that they create don't penetrate nearly far enough to provide a, a pathway. So the um, so there's very little danger that the that the gas that's released at the formation depth by fracking is going to make its way up to the near surface where the drinking water is. So I, I, I should say that um, potable water in um, in uh, in the north probably I can't remember what the depth is right now, but it's like something like four or five hundred meters. But below five hundred meters, most of the water is quite saline. Uh, you know, getting sea watery kind of stuff, really saline. So most groundwater, the deeper you go with groundwater systems, the more saline the water is, generally speaking. And uh, it's it tries to approach, you can think of the, the natural evolution of, of groundwater quality is to become like seawater. And it kind of makes sense the longer you keep water exposed to rock. You know, it's going to dissolve more and uh, so it's the more rocks it dissolves the more seawater like it becomes and so that that water that's sitting down really really deep it's been stewing in its juices for millions of years it becomes quite salty so that so the good quality water is near the surface and um, so it's hard for that uh, that that gas under a natural pathway to get to the near surface just because there's too many thick impermeable beds but it can get through uh, a pathway that's created by drilling. And so that's why the focus is mostly on boreholes and borehole integrity and pathways along the borehole. Uh, we didn't study, we don't study any of that. We just, we, uh, what we were studying is, well, 
what happens if gas does get into the near surface? How does it affect the, the water quality? And not uh, the, the, the properties of these boreholes. That's more of a drilling engineering um, issue. Interesting. And, and how does it affect the water? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, uh, so we're not done yet. So I have to say everything is, uh, is preliminary. So here's how we studied it. Uh, the, uh, we went to a site near Hudson's Hope, uh, British Columbia, and uh, which is in the Peace area. There's lots of fracking operations in there. And then we intentionally uh, released natural gas into the ground in the sh shallow subsurface in sort of the potable water air zone. And we watched what happened. And um, so we've been watching it now for almost two years, two years ago, we, we injected it. And the, the question we want, we are asking is, well, where does that gas go? And uh, how does it change the, the, the aquifer and the water quality? Um, as far as where does the, the gas go, uh, one thing to know in that whole area in, in the Peace River is uh, there's near the surface, there's a thick layer, well, it, its thickness varies, but there's a, a dimixed till, they call it. So it's a, it's a very low permeability material. Um, and it's, uh, it's got the, the consistency of modeling clay or plasticine, uh, but there's stones and boulders, so it's a till, but still it's, it's quite, quite impermeable. And so what you find is gas, when you inject it into the, into the ground or when it's, uh, it can form sort of, you can kind of think of it as bubbles, but it's not really bubbles because it's in the pores of the gas, but it's, it's a separate gas phase. So the pores in the subsurface are, uh, are filled, can be filled with a separate gas phase, and that will tend to move up by, um, by uh, buoyancy. So just the same way, you know, a bubble underwater moves upwards, a bubble in the ground will move upwards through the porous media until it hits what we call a capillary barrier. And that's basically when, when the pore sizes are really small, it's hard for the gas to push, push into, the, into those pore spaces. Mm -hmm. So what, what we're finding is it looks like the gas is kind of pooling in the subsurface underneath these low permeability materials, these low permeability tills. Some of it seems like it could make its way through uh, cracks and fissures in the, uh, in the dimect at the surface. And so we had, and Uli Mayer was leading this, uh, this part of the research. Uh, we had these uh, surface flux chambers right over the, the injection location. We were trying to sense if any of the gas was gonna break through the surface. And why is that? Um, well, one concern is greenhouse gas emissions. You know, if we've got, if we've got uh, 10,000 new wells and they all leak a little bit, you know, hypothetically, you know, what, what could that do for our, our greenhouse gas emissions? Um, so we didn't see a lot coming out of the surface. Uh, we also had um, uh, we had drones flying around trying to sniff it in the air. We had a uh, eddy covariance system, which also tries to measure what's in the free air. Uh, so we didn't. So it looks like most of it stays in the ground. Um, most of it is uh, it's kind of moving. It, it, it moved until it was trapped, just in the way that if you're a, if you're a petroleum geologist, you think of a trap for a natural gas uh, deposit or something, but you know, basically it's stuck underneath a low permeability unit, unit. And then um, it slowly dissolves uh, as groundwater flows by that uh, if the incoming groundwater doesn't have a lot of natural gas in it, it will tend to dissolve that pool. And so it's going to dissolve it and then float it away eventually downstream. And then um, now the question we had is, is it going to affect the water quality? And why would it affect the water quality? Well, um, methane is, uh, is uh, an energy source or a carbon source for some bacteria in the subsurface. And so they see methane, they, they start to metabolize it. Um, you, you, you'd think it could happen, but we're not seeing any... Um, we're not seeing much action down there in terms of metabolization. So it doesn't seem like there's big changes. Um, now, the other thing that sh which confounds this um, is that there's lots of naturally occurring methane. Uh, methane is very pervasive in, in groundwater. So here in Richmond, for instance, we, we measure uh, methane in the groundwater. Um, and it's just a, 
a natural biogeochemical process of uh, uh, anaerobic degradation of, act of uh, organic matter. So you bury organic matter, you know, in a pond or slough or in your compost pit. Uh, once the oxygen goes, there's a chance that you can get uh, methane occurring. We can determine the difference between methane that was created through the degradation of organic matter in the near surface from that that was created at frac depth by looking at isotopes. Um, but, uh, so it may be in the, the groundwater in the piece, there's lots of naturally occurring methane uh, from this biogenic source, as we call it, from just natural degradation of near surface organic matter as well. So for that reason, you'd think, well, you know, there's lots of methane there already. At our site, there wasn't, but uh, it, overall, there's lots. So uh, maybe you won't see a big change because there's already, there's already been methane there. And we know that even though bacteria can eat it, it's not their favorite thing to eat. And then um, the last thing, I guess, is the water there's quite cold. <laughs> I don't know. You pump the water out of the ground, it's like it's like four degrees, five degrees Celsius, and uh, so it's quite chilly. And in the same way that you put your milk in the fridge to keep it from, you know, from the uh, spoiling, you know, the bacterial reactions, um, cool temperatures slow down a lot of those um, uh, respiration processes. And so maybe it's just really there may be changes, but we're not seeing it. We're not seeing big big changes right now. So, so the 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 what we think is happening right now and uh, subject to further data uh, we just sampled some uh, the wells again uh, four weeks ago is that um, the gas is pooling underground uh, being trapped slowly dissolving as groundwater goes by doesn't appear to be strongly affecting the water quality great i never thought about um microorganisms that metabolize methane. Um, but I guess they're basically bugs that eat farts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and where where the uh, and where Uli sees a lot of this is uh, not as much in the aquifer, which is anaerobic, no oxygen. But if once you get into the soil zone, when there's oxygen around, then the bacteria are more, uh, they can more aggressively uh, consume that, that methane. So the consumption of that methane, and it depends on things like the residence time and the oxygen concentrations, that kind of thing. So, and they convert it to CO2 when they, when they consume it. Oh, so which is a, um, a more potent uh, greenhouse gas, the methane or the CO2? Methane is quite a bit more potent. Methane is quite a bit more potent. And um, although it has a shorter, and I'm not an expert on the, the atmospheric side, but I know it has a shorter residence time in the in the atmosphere, but um, so it it goes into the atmosphere, and once it's in the atmosphere, then it will oxidize and convert to CO two CO two in a certain time frame. But um, because that's there's always leaks and it's always being replenished here and there. There's a certain um, I think two ppm is the, uh, the global average methane concentration, and it's I can't remember the the, the factor. Uh, more potent than CO2 it is in terms of being a greenhouse gas uh, but it's it's still it's it's not insignificant you know you can't dismiss it as it's all CO2 so methane is is worth considering and uh, large methane leaks are are something we should be concerned about and from our work it doesn't look like there's large methane leaks from uh, or it's, it doesn't look like it's easy for methane to leak out of the ground if it's leaked in the subsurface. What uh, other literature, which I'm not involved with, um, is concerned about is leaks of methane from infrastructure, so pumping stations, you know, surface pipelines, that kind of thing. And then you can get you can get some big, uh, they call them super emitter sites. You know, some guy forgot to turn the valve off, went to lunch, you know. <laughs> You know, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, so that, that surface infrastructure. And then um, there, there is interesting work also on distributed source leaks. So if you look at all the, the gas appliances in Vancouver and all, you know, the, the slightly, you know, not screwed tight fittings and, you know, pipes and da, da, da. Um, what's the net uh, impact of that? And so people are looking at that, that as well. So those, the, infrastructure distributional leaks are also uh, 
uh, worth looking at. And uh, again, I'm not, I'm not uh, up on the literature enough to say uh, this is more important than that, but uh, I know that the, these infrastructure leaks are relatively important. Well, that's a great reminder that, I mean, we all have a role to play in, in um, limiting the, the, uh, our impact in climate change. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, now, it sounds like you've done some really interesting field work. And one thing I keep hearing from our scientists is that uh, really crazy things happen out in the field. <laughs> uh, do you have any bizarre field stories you'd like to share? Yeah, well, it's, there's, one, there's one sort of a tall tale that, uh, well, it's not a tall tale. It was kind of scary at the time. But uh, so uh, one of our uh, the, the, the really interesting projects that I, I had worked on since about 2005, I guess, was at the, in Peru, in the, behind the Andes Mountains, at the Antimina mine. And uh, we were asked uh, to come in and help them understand drainage from waste rock piles. So on the very first visit there, um, where we were trying to, you know, get, see the mine and understand the, the problem, uh, I went down with Ubi Mayer, a colleague, Bern Klein from Mining Engineering, um, a, uh, one of the students, a mining student who was from Peru, and then a, uh, a postdoctoral fellow. I can't remember where he was from. I think he was also mine, in the mining department looking at, uh, at covers. So we were in the, we visited the mine. It's, uh, it's near the city of Juarez. It's, that's at about uh, 3,000 meters. This is all really super high elevation stuff. So the mine itself is at, at uh, between 4,200 and up to 5,000 meters. So that's like 13, 14, 15,000 feet. So it's uh, a lot of people get uh, altitude sickness, soroche as they call it down there. So we've done our stuff at the mine and then um, we thought we should meet the local university people as well. And the, uh, Normally, when you go to the mine, you go up on a mining company bus. And uh, we, because we we're researchers, we had sort of chauffeur guys in our own little car on the way there. And on the way back, we were going to take the mining company bus. But uh, because we met these researchers, they put us on uh, a public bus on the way home. So we, we talked to these guys. And then at 10 p.m., uh, we take the bus. And it's an eight-hour drive down to Lima uh, on these windy windy roads in the mountains and they put you know we were at the hotshot researchers so they put us in the first class so these are double-decker buses quite nice and you, know, you kind of lean back and they had little Spanish movies and stuff like that so we get in the bus and first thing that's kind of unusual is you get on the bus the video everyone's videoing you when you get on the bus they have a video camera so why are they doing that well it's sometimes bandits are on the bus you think okay well that's what's that but um we're down we're going down the 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 windy roads like two in the morning and we're in this on the main <laughs> first first floor i guess you say the you know the bottom uh level of the bus the double-decker bus the luxury section and i'm next to uh, this uh, the peruvian uh, grad student from uh, from mining and i'm kind of sleeping and on a, it's really rough road da, da, da. and then he gives me a shove with his elbow. He says, the bus is under attack. I go, what? And I look up and uh, he's trying to reach, there's a little door to uh, get into the, that cabin. He's kind of reaching at it and trying to, to shut it. And I just kind of look up and the door bursts open. This guy grabs my student by the head, puts a pistol at his, uh, at his uh, temple and, you know, Manos Arriba, you know. He's, so these, these guys, what had happened, was they uh, they were at some town and they stopped the bus to let someone off and this is i guess the, the typical modus operandi uh stopped the bus to get off and so while the person was getting off on the one side a guy went over to the driver's side and put a pistol to his head and said drive up 500 meters and stop and so the guy drove up 500 meters stopped and four people with pistols came on the got on the bus and so we had two guys with pistols on our floor and then uh, three guys, uh, two guys upstairs and one guy in the bus uh, um, driver's area. And they got on the, I guess they got on the bus and they just started driving down the road. And so for, for the next hour, these guys, they stood each of us up 
You know, I took my wedding ring, my watch, my laptop, my camera, went through all of us in the bus, you know, with pistols pointing at us all the, the whole time, cleaned us out. Um, as they're driving down the, uh, we're driving down the Pan America Highway, actually, and you could see cars passing us and they were doing it, you know, because it, it, it looks suspicious if there's this bus sitting on the side of the road doing right. nothing, you know, so, and, uh, uh, and then, uh, I don't know, about an hour later, the guy, they, they stop, um, they, they get off, the bus pulls off and they say, okay, it's done, we're finished. Yeah, so it's like, oh, whew, dodged a bullet kind of thing. But uh, yeah, you know, so being, uh, being robbed at, uh, at gunpoint, um, that was an experience anyways, you know, so, uh, it's, and it's kind of funny, we, uh, we pulled into this town at four in the morning and, we kind of go to the police station. It's kind of like, you know, the guy's sitting at the thing with his, <laughs> his hat over, you know, the, the, the bus. And what you're supposed to do is tell him, everyone's supposed to tell him what they lost. And so he's, he pulls this big book, kind of like Hogwarts, this measure of dust all over. And Chris guy, you know, watch, watch. He writes down, watch. And then, you know, computer writes. And there's, there's 60 people lined up. We say, forget this. And so we all get back in the bus and just <laughs> go back to Lima. And um, fortunately for us, all the uh, the researchers there, you know, they didn't take my passport, which was which was good. And um, the uh, as I recall, I think my camera was in the luggage in the back, so they didn't get the luggage uh, in the back. But uh, the uh, we flew out later that day because we had we were planning to leave that day anyways. So we flew out with all that stuff, and then. Um, the, the mining company reimbursed us for all the, the things that we'd lost. So, so that's, that, that showed us the, uh, the importance of, of having a local partner. And it was an interesting introduction to, uh, to Peru. Now, in the meantime, Peru's also had a fantastic economic growth. So I think the, 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 the gradient, the, the pull, you know, there's these rich gringos and I'm just a poor guy. I think that has dissipated, but there still is a lot of, uh, of income inequality and you know regrettably you still have to be reasonably savvy where you go in uh, in Peru but uh, uh, it's I'd still I would consider it a safe country as long as you just you know travel in the right spots and things like that I, you know it's 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 fantastic beautiful beautiful country so don't let this story <laughs> turn you the wrong way <laughs> I always say um, even a city like Vancouver um, you know, if you keep your wits about you, for the most part, you'll be safe. Um, yeah, but just there's bad, there's bad, there's bad places everywhere. That's right. Yeah, I mean, they, we wouldn't have expected on a commercial bus, but you know, I guess uh, that used to be fairly, fairly common in in Peru. Like I say, I think it's it's uh, you don't hear that too often. You know, a lot of these developing countries, India is a classic example. It's just uh, car accidents. I mean, that's where that's where your risk is. You know, they. There's, you know, the traffic is kind of uh, helter skelter and chaotic, and and in Peru, you know, this the, the mountains are just treacherous, you know. So if you're not on a well maintained road, you can get in trouble. Well, I'm glad that of all the uh, the stories that I've heard from our researchers, uh, yours is the only one that involves gunplay, and I hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I never thought I would have a gun story like that in my life. Yeah, you know, I, I always felt I was kind of prudent and lived a sheltered life, but yeah. You're just trying to study groundwater. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. I had another, it's another story. It wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, about an intruder into my house, but that wasn't related to research. So I'll, I'll keep that off too. That's another thing I didn't think would ever happen to me, but I, I, won't, I don't want to bring that one up. <laughs> I'll just tease the, tease the audience. <laughs> Um, now, we all have things that we love about our work, uh, things that we don't enjoy quite as much. Um, what are, what's some of the favorite parts of your job? Yeah, I just, you know, the, it's, I, first, you know, that you're um, curiosity driven and you can uh, kind of look at things that you're interested in. I think that's, uh, you know, so uh, variety and challenge, you know, those, those kind of things. So uh, there's so much variety. And then working with, uh, working with very capable and interesting people. And then in being in a place where you can, you know, in sort of a service mission that, you know, teaching fundamentally, I think is about helping others. 
and then uh, the, the research projects that I've been most attracted to are about helping someone or an industry, you know, it, it, but it's still like, for instance, the work we're doing in, in uh, Peru is about the environment in Peru. And, you know, you want to enable their flourishing, you know, their human flourishing. And, and that means having a strong economy. Um, mining, your know, primary industries are part of that for a lot of, a lot of the first world. They, um, there are environmental consequences. And so you want to eliminate those if you can. So that's, you know, why should we be rich and the Peruvians poor? And um, we, we did all our environmental damage earlier. Uh, uh, maybe the Peruvians can develop their, their resources with the, the modern knowledge. And so, so that service, you know, that projects that uh, have uh, some benefit to society. And again, that's very much in, in line with being an engineer, I think too. One thing that I've um, really been impressed with in these interviews is how many people are involved in the mining industry and yet care so strongly about the environment uh, or local peoples. Um, and so that, that's something I, I want to say, you know, thank you for, for being concerned about that. Um, I mean, we do need to get resources out of the ground um, to fuel our society, but I'm glad that we're trying to do so in a, a socially and environmentally conscious way. Yeah, it's, it's, um... Yeah, I mean that's doing our small part for sure, and uh, and I I think it's it's much more than uh, most of these most of these issues are much more than technical issues. Uh, the uh, so so like for instance arsenic in in Indian Bangladesh it's a poverty issue fundamentally. Um, how we manage uh, or develop our resources is kind of a social issue too. You know, in uh, Northeast uh, British Columbia. Uh, one of our targets, one of the things that I really hope we can do is have uh, an impact on First Nations decision making, you know, give them the, the agency or the, the understanding to say, okay, here's, here are the consequences, you know, and then let them decide. So but that fundamentally is sort of a social political issue is who decides about the resources, who gains from that, and, you know, how do we ensure that there's human flourishing, generally speaking. With that, um, and there's a, a technical side that feeds into that, but I think at its core, it's sort of a human social thing. And so, most of these problems, um, contamination, environmental problems, are there's much more of a social uh, aspect to it. And I'm I'm not naive to think that, um, although you know, I, I wish it were like this, you know, because it'd be easier for me as an engineer, I guess that. Here's the technical solution, you know, write it down, run your computer model. There you go, you're done, you know. <laughs> but that's not the way it works. So, and um, and we're and we're poor at that. Uh, you know, engineers are sort of less articulate, they're less uh, you know, they're <laughs> you know, we're not like the English majors or whatever who, you know, really understand human emotions and the human condition well. So uh, so it's a struggle, but it, I, but that I think it is true that the, these most of these these problems are fundamentally social problems, and we need. I've always advocated that the engineers need more humanities and humanities training uh, to be effective in the world. I mean, there is there is definitely a role for someone who totally nerds out on you know the, the technical side, and we want people who are 110 percent on that. But for the rank and file. I, th I think to be effective, you need, we need probably more of that social background than we, we're getting right now. And maybe you get that in the school of hard knocks once you graduate, but the engineering curriculum is still pretty heavily, heavily focused on the technical side. Well, it sounds like you've been practicing uh, in a very humane way and um, <laughs> exercising as much compassion and, and empathy as you can. <laughs> Yeah, I always tell my students the the beatings will stop when the morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to borrow that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, one thing, uh, another thing that we've been looking at is uh, the diversity within our department, um, uh, not just in the terms of the diversity of research, but also the diversity of our researchers. Uh, and sometimes that diversity can be a benefit or a drawback. Uh, has there been anything that's caused you to? Uh, unfairly struggle in the field of earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences. Well, you know, I'm I'm probably one of the most privileged people here. You know, I always I still can't believe that uh, I made it out of Saskatchewan. So the uh, 
so I, f I feel I've benefited from every, you know, lucky break and uh, just being, you know, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that way. So no, I, I, I'm extremely grateful and uh, it does pain me when I see others suffering unnecessarily because of things that they have no control over and, and circumstances. And, um, you know, I think when you work in the, in the third world, places like Peru, places like Bangladesh, um, you see, you know, how lucky you are because you talk to these people and it's like, they're just as capable as, and smart as me, but they, they just picked the wrong parents. You know, they were, they didn't have, they, they had a school system that wasn't functional and there were no uh, opportunities for them. And so, you know, when you speak to these villagers, it's, you know, they're smart, reasonable people, but they just never had any opportunities. So, so it is a shame. And, you know, that, that, that it, in a real profound sense, that role of luck and circumstance in outcomes in, in life and what to do about that is something that I really, uh, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a real important societal problem. Uh, it's why people in, in Canada or Vancouver, you, you, you name your, your, your specific zone, why should we have so much more and uh, so better outcomes than uh, someone who just by, they didn't pick their parents properly you know, or didn't pick their health outcome properly, or they, they got, uh, they were in an unfortunate accident, you know, they're bystanders and they were hit by bullets, whatever, you know, why should they suffer more? And what's, what's the proper societal response to that? That's a real uh, difficult political question. And now you see it, you know, and people, are, fortunately people are talking about it a lot, you know, so income inequality. So I've gone beyond, you know, the, 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 the Vancouver or UBC, my specific case, but I think it's, um, uh, that that general problem is, uh, I think, is an important issue, and and how to how to grapple with that, I don't know, you know, but it's something I'm interested in, and and try to try to what I hear and read about it, I, I try to understand, and, and but I don't know what to do with it, so I really, um, uh, it's complicated. It's not, and it's I always say these technical issues are easy. These social problems, you know, those are the tough problems. Calculus and numerical modeling and groundwater flow that stuff's all easy it's these uh social social questions that are that are challenging well that's a great reminder for all of us i mean um the idea that none of us really pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps because we're all born with um an immense amount of, of privilege uh, growing up in the western world um, yeah just 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 pure luck really mm -hmm. i mean the, the uh we, we know that people tend to um ascribe more of their success to, you know, I worked hard and, you know, it was their own abilities, but, you know, from, I think it's probably fair to say too, from uh, just, just the fact that you're born in Canada or the U.S. or, you know, some uh, developed nation puts you so far ahead of the majority of the world. And um, that alone explains a big part of your success. And, you know, things like, you can go back to like, oh, I was hardworking. Well, where'd that come from? Is, you know, where is is that? You know, well, it's well, well. It's, I did you learn that on your own? Is that genetic? Was that maybe because of your friends that you you dealt with? You know, the, your school was very competitive, and they're all you know. So I think you can. Uh, there's a lot of luck and circumstance there, and you can kind of trace it ad reductum. That's where I kind of get confused and say, okay, what's what do we do about this then? <laughs> yeah, it's easy to miss these uh these hidden biases almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 it's. Uh, I think uh, it's, if, I try to frame it in terms of, okay, you know, this is how I got here. And so uh, uh, you gotta be charitable and empathetic to people who maybe aren't in the same uh, position and, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that um, is almost universal right now is the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, it's really changed our day-to-day -day lives uh, all around the world. Uh, have you been able to do your work from home or how has, how has COVID impacted you? Uh, fortunately for me personally, it's been, been reasonably good and that uh, I've had, because I was department head, I've had a fair backlog of stuff that I can kind of mine out and publish. And so really what I should be, 
what the, the COVID's allowed me to do is just kind of sit down and focus. And, and I'm, kind of, I'm kind of got a magpie mind in the sense that I'm, I'm, I think I'm kind of curious and I very, I get distracted easily. So this uh, has helped me focus. Um, broader, broadly, more broadly speaking, we do have quite a few field projects and, it, it ha and lab projects. And so it has adversely impacted uh, some of the, our students. And uh, so that's, that's disappointing. But, you know, and I try to look at this as a uh, opportunity for growth too. You know, it's a very unusual circumstance and it's caused people to think about things that they haven't thought about. Uh, and you know, of course there's all this tremendous amount of suffering, fear and angst, but there's also, I think an opportunity to kind of think about bigger, bigger picture things. And um, so I'm, that's sort of the, the, <laughs> the approach, you know, again, not necessarily research wise, but uh, you know, what is, what's, what's this all about? And uh, yeah, it gives gives you a chance to to think more broadly that way. So so that's that's why I I think it's also an opportunity. I think that's a really healthy attitude, and I love that expression, a magpie mind. I've never heard that, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like magpies. They 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 are they are smart birds. You know the corvids. <laughs> uh, corvids, not covids. Yeah, corvids. Yeah, corvids. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound like that though too. Uh, now, Roger, those are all my questions. Um, thank you. This has been great. Before I yeah, go, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Thank Sorry, I, I kind of soapboxed now and then, but uh, I appreciated. Uh, uh, I enjoyed the conversation, and um, I'm sure you're not going to crash the server with the views, but uh, <laughs> still, it was fun. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>